0: Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 23 of the podcast, the topic is digital manufacturing with CAD CAM in the cloud. Our guest is John Hershtick, head of SaaS Onshape and Atlas Platform at PTC. In this conversation, we talk about the story of SOLIDWORKS, using agile methods, listening to the market, charting the evolution of CAD into SaaS and its emerging and future iterations in the open source cloud and beyond. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators hosted by futurist Strom Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works the Industrial Upskilling Community, launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast, industrial conversations that matter. John, how are you today? Great, Tron. Pleasure to be here. So I'm so excited because we're going to go on this very ambitious journey, hopefully, from past, present to future. And, you know, there's none better than, than you to describe it. And in our pre-call, John, we, we were talking about this and it really is a, desor- a story that deserves to be heard. And I think a story that 10 years from now will be told and retold, because I do believe that you have been onto something that others have been a little slower, you know, getting at. Um, and I wanted you, John, to... Ex- Explain how it is that you got so deep into digital but also manufacturing because not everybody who goes to MIT and majors in mechanical engineering then goes straight into manufacturing. Give us a little bit of your sort of early, early days. I I know that one of the fun stories is the MIT blackjack team. Yeah. Um, there are other stories.
1: Well, um, I, uh, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in 1962. I'm going to come back to that later in the story because that was a big year for CAD. Not that I was born. There was another big event that year. And I grew up in Chicago, and uh, I was very interested in electronics, and that led me to start programming computers in 1975. By the way, a little, little trivia sidebar. I learned to program a computer in the same building, the high school, where they filmed the movie The Breakfast Club. If you've seen that movie, that high school, that's where I learned to program a computer. I taught myself. There were no classes. There was a terminal in the corner. 110 Baud. So 110. And in that same building, it's also where I took another course at the same time in drafting, paper-based drafting. And the two seemed to have nothing to do with each other. I got placed into that through an aptitude test. So 1975, I learned paper-based drafting. I learned computer programming. I go to college thinking I'm going to major in computer science, but I change. My uncle convinces me to move into mechanical engineering and product design, which looked much more interesting. So I go to get an internship, and, and, and it reminded me of my drafting background. you know. And Anyway, I go to get an internship in college in 1981, 40 years ago this month, and uh, they placed me at Computer Vision, a CAD company. They say, oh, you're a mechanical engineer. You know how to program computers. And I, uh, uh, I have to say that that I, I've worked 40 years now in the same business the same not the same company but the same industry building software tools for product development and that are used to design and manufacture products I've um, been in several companies and I view today I'm 40 years into it um, Uh, Probably what I'm best known for is founding and leading SolidWorks for many years. I was the lead founder and then longtime CEO. I spent 18 years there. But today, I'm at PTC with Onshape, and people say to me, Tron, they'll say, uh, hey, you've been at it a long time. What was it like in the early days or when you were just getting started? And I always answer the same. I say, today, now, these are still the early days and we're still getting started. And that's true for me in my career, it's true for the CAD industry, and it's true for the digital transformation of manufacturing in general, that we're only about half done, if that, with the power of what we could really do for product developers, for manufacturers in the world. And so it's it's still an exciting time to be here, and my work is far from done.
0: It's so interesting you say that because the timelines of technology and of industry uh, sometimes seem to clash, and and maybe because there's this impression, this popular impression, I guess that technology somehow moves at the speed of light, and usually people will say, well, you know, industry is slower, and you know, like society, you know, is, is even slower to catch on. But I mean, you have seen a bunch of different technologies throughout these 40 years, what is your best explanation for this impression people have that technology somehow moves really rapidly? When if I look at the manufacturing industry, it's sort of like the opposite. But on the other hand, when technology does get introduced, it it, it obviously... Uh, and you do it the right way, it has massive, massive consequences. What, What, what is your sort of general one-liner on, on that? And, you know, we are going to go oh, into wow. the details here, but it's just an interesting thing. And then lastly, right, people these days vastly underestimate manufacturing, right? The whole U.S. actually sort of have, you know, they left it behind. And yeah. that, again, is really mysterious. So...
1: I'd say the answer is if I use the language of CAD and design, I would say the answer is most people lack the ability to form a good perspective view. Okay. Mm-hmm. On t- over time and change. So you tend to remember things that are happening in the present or a big change that you saw and you don't remember a lot of other things and people have very poor senses of time scale, you know, and, and perspective. So, um, Anyway, and and I have seen changes happen that seem a lot of changes also seem really um, unimaginable when you're looking at them going forward, and looking at them in the rearview mirror after they happen, they're the most obvious thing in the world, you know. And so, so those things, right. you know, so it's very hard for people. Also, it's hard for people to relate to the different speed at which. Computing and digital technology evolves relative to physical technology that you see. Like it, like you know, like if if um, if cars had gotten faster at the rate that computers have since I started programming in 1975, you know. Cars go about the same speed that they did then, but computers go whatever a thousand times faster. You know, would have cars going fifty thousand miles an hour. You know, it doesn't happen, or a car would cost ten cents if if they the pricing had changed the way computers do. So people, a lot of people just can't grasp that and relate to it. And change happens when it happens. It it doesn't happen be, on the schedule of the entrepreneur. It happens right. because there's a. A, a a combination like like a storm of certain conditions come together and it's like magic and then boom it happens. Um,
0: well, so we'll we'll get through that in these forty years because there is indeed. It seems to me uh, there are these moments where things really do change, even with physical systems. So, and, and yeah. we'll get to that in oh, when we I, talk about the future. One as more
1: well. one more point. To borrow from Mark Andreessen, one of the investors in um, Onshape from Andreessen Horowitz, he said, and I might not get the details right, he said, I arrived in Silicon Valley in, I think it was 2000, and I felt I had come too late and missed everything. So people always think some generation of tech is kind of done until it gets dramatically expanded. Like people thought, um, you know, people thought computers were very widely used in the 1970s and 80s. And then when the PC came along, people thought, oh wow, now computers are really widely used, you know. But then the phone came along <laughs> and made computers look like specialty devices, you know. And so it's like everything's everything's kind of relative. You know, there's been several generations where computers felt they were made widely available. And it's because again, it was made widely available compared to what came before. That what came going for you
0: know, it's funny forward. you you mentioned this because you know as you know I spend a lot of my my time thinking about these things, but sometimes you're a little sad because you know you you meet people who say you know what are you trying to tell me what do you have to tell me I have an iPhone uh, you can't teach me anything right <laughs> so uh, you know at any given moment there's a technology where people think this is the pinnacle of technology anyways uh, John let's take take us back to the beginning of CAD because sure you know computer assisted design it, it has changed so much. What was it when you essentially um, embraced the, the embryos of what it has become? And, you know, let's use that as a lens over these last 40 years. So what was it when you started engaging with so, it? And, and what is it that um, you shaped it into?
1: So when I started, and by the way, um, so I came along in 81 to computer vision. If I just go back for just a moment and say in 62, Ivan Sutherland, wrote a thesis called Sketchpad at MIT. His PhD thesis online, you can find it if you Google it. By the way, if you go to YouTube, you can see videos from the 1960s of Sutherland's demo. He's not the guy giving the demo. It's not Sutherland, but it's the system he wrote. There seems to be some confusion about that, but you'll find him. There's these really cool black and white videos. So 1962, the year I was born, Sutherland's writing his PhD at MIT. And you want to talk about a visionary. Uh, Tron. He was a total visionary. It was not only the first CAD system, it was probably the first gra- computer graphics system, object-oriented programming, interactive use of computers. So that's 62. By 1981, when I come into the picture, you have these companies, you have two kinds of CAD out there. In-house developed systems like General Motors had developed um, a system, Ford, um, Boeing. I believe they had developed their own internal CAD systems, running on mainframe computers. And then you had these companies building CAD systems, most notably Computer Vision and Aplicon. And they were making um, mini computer-based systems. Now, when I say mini, remember, perspective view, all things are relative. This was still the size of several sub-zero refrigerators, okay? And went into a special room, typically, and had maybe three terminals connected to it. Uh, with probably one one one-thousandth of the computing that's in my watch today. Okay, no kidding. You're talking about machines with maybe, I don't know, 64K of memory, maybe. Okay. Anyway, the company sold the computer system and the software and the furniture. You'd get the chair and the table and everything. That's the computer vision I walked into. And so that was the nature of the computing. Now, the nature of the application software was... Uh, using either doing computer-aided drafting, meaning taking what I learned in high school to do pencil on paper and doing that on the computer screen. If you can computer-aided drafting in 2D or 3D modeling, but you might think of it as 3D modeling with the digital analog of coat hanger wire. It's called wireframe modeling. So if you want to make an object, you'd make it the way... You ever seen a sculptor work? There's some famous sculptor... um, I forget who it was who who worked with wire and they made like shapes that looked like things. That's what we were doing in 3D in that day. And there was a twinkle in the eye to do what was called solid modeling or real real 3D modeling but it didn't really work very well. So those were the systems we were selling. They were slow, they were crazy hard to use. Day 1 on the job in 81, I'm a college student, it's summer. Day one on the job, they show me how to use the system, and I can't figure it out. And I end up, you know, I'm not used to getting up early in the morning. I had lunch. I fall asleep. I'm like, this is so boring. I picked the wrong industry. Good thing it's only for the summer, and yet here I am 40 years old. But the systems were hard to use big. Does that? Most listeners won't really relate to an era where a computer looked like that. You know, you have to have been of a certain vintage to have ever seen one. Let alone used one the way I did in the in the so that's my world of CAD in eighty one quarter million dollars for the system, big mini computer, wireframe and two D drafting.
0: Those were interesting days. I actually uh, I'm old enough to have worked on this Univac system. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I was helping yeah. my dad with some stuff, uh, doing some quantitative modeling, and oh, I was wow. just mostly uh just picking up punch cards and delivering punch cards to... oh punch cards
1: hey i happen to some to lady have some. yeah <laughs> to right some, here. here you, you go. got There's them some punch cards
0: oh yeah, yeah exactly
1: yeah
0: amazing experience right because i mean those days hardware was really hardware i mean there was a oh, yeah. room dedicated to this uh this machine so it, it is interesting how what we now think of as like a, a software driven sort of uh, reality around uh, um Computing you know has has a very uh, physical footprint and started certainly with a very physical footprint yeah
1: yeah you 're right. It started in fact, I believe at that time there was still a lot of a feeling that customers were buying the hardware and the software was thrown in
0: mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. so then john what what happened? did you immediately, as you were sitting there uh, at MIT, I guess between seventy nine and eighty six you were a CAD lab manager. What went through your head? You you were thinking this is inefficient. Uh, I'm going to either leave or change this
1: product. Uh, <laughs> well, I was lab man. I was a student first, and then I was the intern, and then I was lab manager under Professor David Gossard at MIT. who was doing research into the future of CAD, and Gossard. I was lucky, you know. You get lucky in life, and Gossard was my mentor and teacher, and he was another true visionary. He like took over the mantle, you know, from Sutherland and said. This is what, and there were others who worked alongside Gossard, Dave Anderson at Purdue, the people in the UK, um, Robin Hilliard, Ian Braid. There were a lot of people doing research in CAD, but Gossard had this vision of the future. And he would bring people to the lab where we had a mini computer and the big terminal set up and everything. He'd say, I'm building this whole lab to model what every engineer will have on their desktop in the future. Now, this is before. The IBM PC or the the Mac, the Apple II was around, but people would be like, "What? <laughs> You're kidding me!" And he'd say, "Every engineer is going to have it." So what a visionary! I was lucky to be around. He also said it's not going to use these weird type commands. It's going to use a mouse and you know the, the work on graphical user interface. So he did research and he said on solid modeling on varying shapes by by changing dimensions, which is one of the key technologies you get so-called parametric or variational design. So I was in that research lab. I actually wrote my thesis on AI using an expert system to identify problems, manufacturing problems and shapes. Um, That's another story, on a Lisp machine. If you know what that is. So so Gossard, I'm in this Gossard lab and I'm full of visions for the future. And I know what the reality of the CAD system world is like from working at, at computer vision and so forth. And I'm like, and I just wanted to start a company. So off we went, we started our first company based on an
0: idea that we had researched at the CAD lab.
1: That was eighty seven.
0: Right, so so that's eighty seven, and then w- w- what happened? Things started spiraling from from there. W- when was well, it that, that that CAD started to morph into a more, uh, I guess, industrially useful tool that that started to get deployed and, and used, you know, in in, in producing kay. industrial products.
1: So so it was used again. Some people would argue it was used in the sixties and used in the seventies, but. You know, the question is to what degree, you know, and, and, and how. So some notable events were, so I would say until the 80s, it was used only by elite corporations and only in fairly narrow use cases. Okay. A couple things happen around the time I'm starting my first company in the 80s. Let's just look at the decade of the 80s. Um, uh, so Autodesk was founded on the West coast in California, and they build a 2D drafting system called AutoCAD for the IBM PC that had just come out. That catches on like crazy, okay, for drafting, all right? And that brings CAD to an order of magnitude more people, 2D CAD. The other thing that happens is PTC, where I work now, by the way, coincidentally, I just happen to wear this PTC sweater. I didn't, I didn't wear it for, I wear it a lot because I'm comfy, but anyway, um, PTC is founded in the eighties also, and PTC is the first company to take the concept of a 3d solid model. The idea that instead of modeling with coat hanger, you're now modeling essentially like with clay. All right. Like with real material digitally, the digital analog of clay or metal where you really have, when you model an object, you really capture all its physical properties. okay? PTC is the first company to break through and make a system like that that really works well. And they do this in the eighties, and they're another rocket ride company. Industry adopts it. It's based on Unix workstations, Sun Microsystems, Silicon Graphics. No one, no one really knows about these things anymore. They're gone. Unix workstations. So that also happens in the eighties. My company that I founded didn't do all that well. Called Premise. Um, we were building a Sketcher. We were on Microsoft Windows. Well, we were too early on Windows. Had the right idea, but in in 1989, not a lot of people were using Windows compared to today.
0: And so, so by 1989, you were a, actually a somewhat, if I may say, unsuccessful entrepreneur. Yeah, and they were two uh, sort of stellar. Companies out there, Autodesk yeah. and PTC. Was yeah, there was there anything companies. else going on? I mean, comparatively, were there other companies that we should remember? Well, uh, what else yeah. is there to say about the eighties before well, we I'm move to you the that, fantastic nineties story? Oh, the
1: eighties in CAD, I could go on and on. Trying, to- there were a zillion companies I could tell you about. Um, I'm not giving Why you the did highlight they fail? reel. Well, because most startups fail, you know, and most companies, uh, people think their company is going to last forever. Most of them don't, especially in tech. They get eclipsed by the next generation. You know, they say, and sometimes in the world, they say, people say, oh, there's, there's always a bigger fish. Like there's always, you know, like, like you think you're a big fish and some bigger fish comes along. Well, in the world of tech, I, I have the opposite saying. I say, there's always a smaller fish. You know, like you think you're a big fish and then someone comes along and some small company changes the rules. Anyway, there are a lot of other companies. When I talk about, um, Autodesk. There were ten other companies that did PTC CAD, a uh, PC based CAD. CADKEY, VersaCAD. If you gave me some time, I'd remember them. Um, uh, many other companies, but Autodesk grows above them. When you look at PTC, there were many other important CAD companies. I'm leaving out of the story. Dasso System was founded then, and they're a huge they're a huge company today, and very successful. And they had this product called Catia. They had CADAM that they acquired. Katia was a 3D modeling. They would say the first 3D modeler for surfaces, for aircraft. There was a company called SDRC um, out of Ohio, very successful company. Unigraphics, still around today as part of Siemens, a very important company, and on and on and on. I could go. Um, um, Control Data was in the business. There was a company called Calma, bought by GE. There's just too many to mention here. You know, but, but I'm curious the is there
0: here. is there, John, a way to explain? And this is uh, hitting a little close to home. You work at P- uh, PDC, but yeah. you know, is there any way you can explain why Autodesk and PDC were the survivors of the 80s? Like, what is it they did, either in the 80s or sort of rescuing the pieces in the 90s, that made sure that they are still around here today? It's just interesting.
1: Well. You know, it's the usual question of why does one company succeed? Why did Apple succeed with PCs and there were 100 other PC companies? I remember those years. Why, why Apple and not Osborne or something? I think it's a little bit of a combination of, really, it's about, to use modern language, product market, go-to-market fit, and then executional excellence, so product market fit is one thing, but you need go to market fit too. You need a way to get it to market and so where Autodesk kind of hit the nail on the head is they they had a product that they they made to work well enough for drawings, and the market of people who made drawings was ready, and then the go to market of selling through dealers and affiliates and bundling it with the p c it just kind of came together and worked in this magic formula, so to speak. And PTC, now PTC in their case, had a much more distinctive product. I mean, you could argue that AutoCAD's product, there were 10 others equivalent that made drawings just as well, really. They just kind of out, you know, out. They, the other ones didn't have the go-to-market fit. PTC had really for a long time the only solid modeler that really worked. So they would just go in and say, okay, you're looking at three other systems, try making the parts you design in each of them. And, you know, the other systems would crash or wouldn't give geometry and PTCs would. So PTC had this unique product, but they also had a great pricing model, a great go-to-market model, a great platform on the Unix workstations. It all fit and they went, and then both companies executed at scale. Both companies did what a lot of startups fail, even those that have good product market go-to-market fit, they don't execute. They don't turn into execution machines. And those two did. So, you know, it's kind of like making a hit movie sometimes. It's hard to say exactly why. If we knew why, if if anyone really knew why, they would go and well, do it over exactly. and over they again. Would and you know? They would go and do and it. They would go and do it. And even the greatest entrepreneurs, you know, have... You know, Steve Jobs, you know, he built Apple. He also built Next, you know, which wasn't the big success he wanted to be.
0: So then, John, we we are on to the next, not only the next decade, but for you, the next two decades. Mm. And this, again, is like, I think, fairly unique, right? Because if you were talking about sort of (laughs) two decades as a chunk, but we are now talking about the 90s and the 2000s, which was your SolidWorks years. I want you to give us a sense of what were those... Twenty years, like what happened? I mean, the whole thing exploded, and you were incinerating it.
1: Yeah, we were in the right place, right time. So, what's interesting is, in if you go to the just to finish that eighties, nineties transition, the early nineties when nineteen ninety arrives, it finds me selling my first company back to computer vision. Autodesk is growing like crazy. PTC is disrupting the crap out of computer vision okay they they and i'm at computer vision so i'm in the receiving end of ptc winning all the business and taking our business away and i'm at computer vision and i see this happening and i have always was i was still interested in windows because i'd started that first company with windows and interestingly when i i started thinking about doing something new i didn't like being at computer vision so much i mean there were some good things but i wanted to leave and so I decide to leave and at first I say to myself and my, one of my co-founders, I say, look, um, let's, one thing I learned is let's get out of this CAD business because it's too hard and let's never build a software product from scratch again. <laughs> well, a year later, I find myself, I can't get away from the CAD market. And I can't get away from <laughs> building software from scratch. And what happens is I see the customers that we lost at computer vision. I go meet PTC customers and they're really happy with what PTC can do, and I see PTC's 3D modeling, but I think you know that's a great way to model, but um, it's too expensive, too hard to use. And I see what's happening with the Windows PC, which I've been watching now for many years. You know, uh, I don't know five to ten years at that point. And I say, you know, and I see what I know that on the drawing board, you know, under NDA and stuff. I know about Windows thirty-two, Windows NT. Is coming along then it may have been public but windows nt was the 32-bit version um if you don't know what that if you don't, if people don't know the difference between virtual memory and not virtual memory they'd be shocked to learn how primitive old operating systems are. i'm not going to get into it anyway there's this new 32-bit more capable version of windows coming along so i'm i'm running around at computer vision saying oh the pc and 32-bit windows and people are like no one uses that for cad It's not powerful enough. It's not secure. Our customers don't want it. Why are you spending time on it? And uh, anyway, I ended up leaving Computer Vision. And I say, look, in the future, it will have PTC's capability, but it'll be delivered like Microsoft Word on a PC and it'll use Windows. And it'll, you know, have file, new, open, save, save as. That's the insight. And we'll use Autodesk's business model. So people say, a, you're a big visionary. I, I felt it was the most freaking obvious thing in the world. We'll have PTC's power, Microsoft's platform, Autodesk's business model. Hello. you know, Just do that. Well, that I want to make formula. a transition
0: here, which maybe is a, a, a little bit sort of psychologizing it, but... Uh You were on the MIT blackjack team from 1984 to 1994, arguably the hardest years in industry, but you must have learned something there. And, you know, publicly the story is that you also made some money there that then went went into the company you founded. If you reflect on this blackjack experience in terms of what it taught you, um, was there some company strategy in there or was there some tactics? I mean, is it at all a stretch to say that some of the gamification that has become so popular these days, there's actually something to it. I mean, you were one of the first to take a game seriously, right? And later then become, you know, a big industrialist. You were on this team, which is, you know, written up in various books. And you guys were, you know, you you had an understanding, obviously, of, of math and of systems and you were applying it you know, in a pretty curious sort of context. But then you took all that, the experience, the money, everything, and then you poured it into SOLIDWORKS. So goes the public story. What, what is your version
1: Yeah, of that? so that is, the, by the way, I've read some of the things written on the internet or and some of the details are wrong, but the general story arc is correct. So I, I joined the blackjack team when I was a grad student. I was working at the CAD lab. By the way, in a perfect storm situation, I ran into the people – Who I I first learned of the Blackjack team the same month that the CAD lab was closed for a year for renovations. And my (laughs) professor, Gossard, went to Japan for a sabbatical. So it's like there's very little for me to do around the lab, so to speak. And and it's the the coincidences of innovation, right? I'm a a grad student at MIT. So um, Blackjack taught me a lot about that was very useful in entrepreneurship. One of the first things it taught me. Is that um, just because everyone says something is a bad idea doesn't mean it really is a bad idea? So a lot of my friends said blackjack. I told them about. it. They're like, "Oh, it's a scam. You can never win money." You know, my brother-in-law's uncle's dentist goes to Vegas all the time, and he says that blah 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 blah. You'll get you know you get kicked out. It will, you know it, it can't work. You're gonna lose. All, you know, it's just like all this naysayer stuff. You know, negative, negative, negative. There were very few friends of mine who said, "Oh." I think you'll win money in 30, 40 years from now, you have a great story to tell. (laughs) Nobody said that, you know, people were like, it wasn't seen as really so glamorous. It was like, Oh, why are you doing that? You know? And, and I just was drawn to it. It was very interesting. I had a background as a magician before then. And so it was very interesting to me. And so, so, um, so the system works so it taught me first of all a lot of people said no and then the system worked the other thing it taught me is not to uh, not to draw too many conclusions from small sample sizes most hmm. people in business and in life they don't understand how big a sample size you need to really draw a conclusion they see a few a few data points and they think that that makes you know makes a trend and with blackjack it teaches you that like you know yes, we make money, so if you start with a certain amount of money, you end with a lot more if we played with our system for months. Okay, imagine a graph, okay? You start here and you end here. But the journey looks like this. You know, you see what I'm doing? If you can't, if you're only hearing me and not seeing it, it's a noisy one. Wa- it's a imagine a lot of noise, like a stock graph from Wall Street. If you look at the Dow Jones over the last 20 years. There's some noise and big dips, but it generally heads up. That's what happened with blackjack. So most in business, people will see a person or a company do one or two things and, and think, oh, those things work. So the person must be brilliant or those things failed and the person must not be. And I kind of know that that you can't draw too many conclusions. Someone can be playing the right strategy and still have what seems like a remarkable run of bad luck and vice versa. so that's a very useful lesson when it comes to
0: entrepreneurship. It's interesting. I mean, I guess blackjack at the end of the day is very much I mean it's strategy, but it's also statistics. It's very advanced statistics. It's
1: very actually. statistical e- exactly, it's very statistical. And the probably the third thing I learned is I learned what it felt like to win, you know, and I think that you're not really a complete entrepreneur unless you've learned what it's like to feel a successful business, one that wins, and also learn what it's like to feel a tougher, unsuccessful business. And only those experiences really teach you what both feel like. you know. And if you've only felt one or the other, you're not really complete in your entrepreneurial palette yet, in my opinion.
0: The so. fascinating thing for me is that you didn't only feel how it was to win and lose once. Like you pointed out, you got a repeatable pattern and, yeah. and you got... a a system you know through it so all right look this uh, fascinating stuff so so get get me into solidworks let's let's spend some time on solidworks so It's, uh, it's a good it's a good story that i would say no one knows is too much that's not right but very few people know about SolidWorks compared to the people that know about an Apple or something else, and oh yeah, uh, well,
1: nor should they, because I would argue, you know, SolidWorks has not made the impact on the world that Apple has. You know, I, you know.
0: true, but you know, we're talking yeah. about a massive industry, and uh, it, yeah. it was a product. What what was it when you conceived of it back in '93? What, so, what was it that you guys set out to do?
1: It was really what it came to be. I want to say, you know, sometimes there are real pivots in strategy, and as you know, in startups, but that wasn't the case with SolidWorks. The product was pretty much exactly as I had envisioned it, like I just said to you. It was something that had the power of pro-engineer, of 3D modeling, okay, that ran like Word on a PC that had the UI of Microsoft. Now, did we make some some changes and improvements in the paradigm? We did. Could I get into a CAD technology discussion and discuss things like, you know, allowing partially constrained sketches versus fully constrained sketches? We innovated in UI with a concept called the feature manager, which we patented, which today is part of all systems, really. You know, things, things like that. But fundamentally, you know, this the simple version of the story is it was. 3D, the high-end systems 3D power put into a word like software offering, sold like Autodesk, thousands of dollars. What we did evolve a lot from day one was the business model, the pricing and how we distribute. So I start my home in Winchester, a 1993-ish, okay, I'm, I, and I start building this thing with and I start recruiting friends of mine to do it with me. No, no payment. Can't pay them. And I'm I'm living on my savings from blackjack. And we do that for a year, building a prototype. And I can't raise venture capital. I try to raise venture capital. I go to the people who invest in my first company. Yeah, not interested. I go to other VCs and they're like, wait a minute, you're competing with PTC? Yeah, we are. Well, PTC is like the most successful company in the US right now. Well, but let me tell you about the future and you know, run on Windows and get out of my office. You know, it's like,
0: I don't want, you know. Was there even an industrial tech VC environment to go to, um, or were you just going to the plate, pitching the plain Silicon Valley VCs?
1: No, no. Well, first of all, we were pitching to Boston VCs. Yeah. Um, even though in my first company, we had raised money from Kleiner Perkins. And by the way, a little sidebar my first company, I went to California, I sat in the round conference room at Kleiner Perkins and presented to. Frank Caulfield and Brooke Byers, and John Doerr and Vinod Kosla And as I say, can I use profanity on your podcast? That's right. I won't. I'll just say I presented to Regis McKenna, who I remember came back and told my friends, Regis F and McKenna. I mean that out of praise and you know respect not you know like you won't F believe who I and presented to it was Regis <laughs> F and McKenna. Brooke Byers, Frank Caulfield of Kleiner per- it used to be Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. And I know ben- that Nova was Kosla, the ultimate
0: pitch.
1: Coastal Ventures days. and John Dor who's like you know the the Babe Ruth of venture capital, you know what I mean? So that's just a sidebar. So I call these guys back. They don't want anything to do with me, you know, because my first company was a big success. And when people in Boston, I go all around these Boston VCs, like a dozen of them. And some of them don't, literally don't let me finish the presentation. I'm not going to name names, but, and another one gets really close and is really excited about investing and then he says, no, we discovered this other company called Cadkey. And I told you, Cadkey was a decent company, but they weren't doing what we were doing. So it's really hard to raise venture, but I stick with it. I have my blackjack money. I convince these co-founders to work. And eventually we get venture people to put money in. Um, and we go and build our product and we just start selling a ton of it. You know, like way more like, like the who did um, you,
0: you convince? You know. I'm just um, curious. Who so we
1: ended up convince? getting money from what happened was Atlas Ventures, Axel Bishara, who is today a big-time VC and head of Bolt, which is a leading venture capitalist in the industrial and, and physical product space. I shouldn't say industrial, I should say they, they work with a lot of companies involved in physical products. And Oxel was a young VC. He was my co-founder at my first company back at the MIT CAD lab and everything. He's this young VC at Atlas. His partners say, he tells me later, his partners say, why are you wasting time with that guy Hirschtek? But he spends time with me. He eventually introduces me to a co-founder of PTC who had left named Mike Payne. And once we get Mike Payne on board, then, then investors start listening. Not because the software is any different. The software is exactly the same, but you have this guy who was a co-founder of PTC, says, This is a good idea and I'm working on it. Oh, okay. Very interesting now. So we get Atlas, Burr Egan Deliage, which turned into Polaris. Okay, John Flint, if you know him. And Northbridge. You know Northbridge, big, big, very successful venture fund. Rich Damore at Northbridge, but Rich is like founding Northbridge. He doesn't even have an office yet. I like, you know, and I remember meeting Rich. And so those guys invested and they, they got what we were doing. And one of the three of them finally said, I'm in, called me up and said, I remember this meeting we had. If you're, I don't want to spend too much. You know, We went for this one meeting with one of the VCs and we, and I instructed my co-founder, Scott Harris, wonderful co-founder. He was doing the demo and this demo you had to click in exactly the right places or the thing would crash okay he was i said scott i want you to keep the demo rolling no matter what happens keep the film rolling don't stop okay keep the visuals rolling so we go into the meeting room with one of the vcs and he's in like he comes in like 40 minutes late oh yeah you're that deal that my friend said i had to look at all right what do you got and he's like, I don't know, he, you know, he's just sort of like distracted or reading something or whatever. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And, and I'm like, hey, we're going to show you a demo. And, you know, and then there was just, just this moment where he like looked up and he goes, wait a second, wait, wait, you're actually running that on a PC. I go, yeah. yeah. It's in windows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he goes, and no one else says anything like this. No, 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 no. And, 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 and it's running on a pc and it really is yeah 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 it is so we have this prototype of the 3d modeling and he looks over at mike p and goes and you were a founder of ptc he goes yeah 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 and and you built windows yeah he goes all right i'm in <laughs> you know like it just it just shifted in a moment like i said about the market he goes i like this deal i'm in and he calls me the next day and he says to me i'm in if you get the other guys so you need what you need when you raise venture capital is is you need someone who's in Who gives you a term sheet? When I advise people, come to me and say, Oh, I'm talking, I get these stories all the time. I'm talking to three investors, and the first one is like, Well, when you get a lead investor, second one's like, maybe the next round. And the third one is like, If you had someone with more experience on the team, and you know what I tell them? I say, You know what that is? That's three versions of no. (laughs) Okay, there's a lot of ways to say no. That's all no. If anyone's really interested, get them to give you a term sheet. Say, If someone says, I'm really interested, say, Great um, send me a term sheet. Then they're interested. Otherwise it's just, no, like VCs have all these ways of like giving you pseudo that stay sort of interested. And I love VCs. So anyway, that's the story. That's a long version, but you seem interested. So we raise our venture money, we build our product and boom, the market just, it's like the entrepreneur's dream, you know, like, 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 in my pre you know like instead of trying to work really hard to find business to business like finds us and we get all these orders and customers and then we grow the business and um
0: but nice. you told me that, you know, today, or at least over the last 10 years, this agile methods have been, you know, all the rage, yeah. but you were using, I mean, it wasn't just by magic that you found this product market fit, right? You had been using ways to listen to the market that are today called agile. How, how did that work out throughout these 20 years? Because it's a, no. you know, even if you had a fairly instant product market fit, surely the market was evolving. How, how did you practice listening, you know, and, and, and evolve the product?
1: Well, I, I think it goes back to my training in engineering at MIT. Remember I said I was in product design. So one of the, you might say, what, what does product design have to do with listening? Well, I was lucky enough to get into a curriculum um, that today I think is much more the norm. Uh, but the curriculum at the time talked about product design, starting by listening to the needs of the customer. So I was trained that before you build anything, you listen to the needs of the customer. You study the customer. This was Woody Flowers, may he rest in peace, one of the founders of FIRST, very famous professor. And, and um, that listen to the customer training, you know, is still part of my DNA. And so we listened with SolidWorks. And then the story of SolidWorks, so if I can, you know, it was really focused on the success of the customer and listening to them. Um, and... And so as SolidWorks continues, we sold it after four years to Dasso System, acquired us for $318 million in 1997. And I stayed at Dasso System running SolidWorks and then advising for 14 more years. So I stay 18 years. And SolidWorks grows to be 600000000 ish dollar a year subs business within DASO systems and we have hundreds of thousands of users and cool products being built and you know really a great ride but i listen to customers problems again i'm going to use this customer listening to take into the next and i visit customers and they like the software but every time i visit a customer i get all these nightmare stories about installations and hardware and service packs and license codes and license code servers and data management servers because people are trying to use it in teams in modern environments with this little thing called the internet connecting them and whoa we never built it for that you know and so i saw those problems at solidworks and at the same time i saw what was happening in cloud web and mobile and you know light bulb off again trying time to build something new
0: so what happened then you you essentially discovered it was time to move to cloud because you know as we were like talking about this digital thread that you've been part of yeah. for 40 years how was it basically customer discussion and discovery that, that where you sort of said okay this is the moment this is the year this is the these are the few years where the cad systems have to move to the cloud and and how was yeah. that transition it must have been a little painful for the software Oh yeah,
1: well it really was it really was seeing two things come together. Okay. One was seeing all the problems the customers had and seeing them face to face, visiting customers, okay, that I just outlined. And the other was seeing new technology look using things like Google Docs. And I was using it when it, when the word processor was called Rightly and Google acquired it. I was a rightly user. And using, I was really fascinated with the potential cloud computing, because not only was it going to solve customer problems, it was going to solve my problems. I hate, I hate extra work. And it just seems so clean and elegant that I could use cloud solutions. And I saw what was happening with Google Docs and Salesforce and th- things like, I don't remember if Zendesk and Workday were around yet, NetSuite, you know, basically everything was going this way. And it wasn't just taking the old application and saying, oh well, We'll move the workload into the cloud or something. No, 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 no. It wasn't doing that. It was saying we're going to rethink the whole app. And the data and the tools live in one place in the cloud and everyone accesses it. And you get, you, you eliminate all this hardware crap and license codes and service packs. You eliminate all the problems they have by design. You don't have different people on different versions of software because we all use the same instance. People don't have to worry about which hardware they have. And then the collaboration benefits are amazing. And that suits the needs of modern teams to be more agile and more innovative. And (laughs) so all these, so what I said was, Hey, we could solve all these problems, but we have to build a completely new system. Yeah. And that's what we did. And, and only, we're the only ones who have done that, by the way, there's no one else in our industry who has built a completely new system from scratch based on cloud web and mobile a saas system they they do partial stuff like oh we've got a cloud system too just download 4 gigabytes of software and copy files to and from our cloud servers and that's not what we're doing
0: we think but at this point mobile. you were an experienced entrepreneur this was yes. your third company you were yes. you're talking about you were about to build on shape what uh, i mean at this point it's getting easier right did you bring yeah. some of the old team along yeah, we, you, you we, certainly we, had your yeah. scars it was it was easier uh,
1: like they say in the Blues Brothers, we're, we're putting the band back together. So we got John Mclaney Dave Corcoran, Scott Harris. Tommy Lee was a co-founder of Onshape. He was my supervisor in 81 when I did my first internship. He's a co-founder of, of, of Onshape excuse me, and of SolidWorks. And then um, uh, Dr. Michael Lauer, uh, one of the smartest people I ever met. He was from the premise days. You know, So these are people we know each other. 30 years We're the only startup I know where the average age of the founders was 50, you know, so we're, by the way, everything interesting I've done in my life, people told me I was either too young or too old to do. I've never been the right <laughs> age for anything.
0: Right. So right. well, what solving. is the right age for anything?
1: Right. <laughs> and, then, and then people told me when I said, Oh, we're going to build this cloud-based CAD thing. You know, people are like, it's all the same stuff I heard with SolidWorks thirty years ago. It's like, oh well, it, nobody uses that, and it's, it's not secure, and it's going to be too. You still slow, heard and, that? I, this oh, is yeah. your
0: third company. You're successful. They're like, yeah, okay. Well, he's, gotta, now he's too old. He's got it all how, wrong.
1: You, know, you got to realize how backwards um, people are in the CAD manufacturing community. Community sometimes when it comes to computing. Again, this is a multi billion dollar segment with. Zero other true cloud systems. Now, again, my competitors will all say they have cloud. I'll leave it to you to judge. They're not really cloud. They're sort of, they'll say, oh, we just have a thick client. (laughs) Your thick client is four gigabyte app. I don't really consider that a cloud app, but they do. We we differ on that. But anyway, we, we, we raise money very easily. We get the founding team together. It was a really hard product to build, and the industry thought we couldn't do it. But sorry, industry, we did it. We built a good system. And we raise venture capital from uh, Northbridge and Commonwealth Capital and NEA, Harry Weller, may he rest in peace, fantastic investor, Andreessen Horowitz. And we go build this system and we go to market and sell it and and today and then PTC comes along. so good old PTC, you know, the same company for companies. And, and Jim Heppelman, the CEO, he sits down with us one day and says, look, I believe that in the future of cloud and SaaS, I believe you're doing it right. Come join us and we'll make a bigger, better success. Much like what happened with SolidWorks and DASO System. So PTC acquires us and we're now at PTC and we have uh, thousands of, of companies using Onshape to design everything you'd imagine, a lot of things you wouldn't. We... We just our sales growth, by the way, commercial sales growth, PTC. I can only refer to PTC public financial statements. And their sure. most recent quarter, they announced their sales growth was over seventy percent year to year, which we believe is quite strong and probably the highest growth rate in the industry by a mile. And we have um, a qu- we have over a million students and teachers using us in education. Almost all of that is free usage. But we're su- super proud of it that we were able to help students and teachers teach CAD, and that market just just uh, flipped overnight to our way, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people moving to us from you know the other systems because in education, obvious. I don't even think I have to say all the reasons why we're the right system. So, and I'm still working on it. I'm still working harder you know on, on the future and um,
0: well, so the future, because you know you've taken us from the eighties, which was yeah. uh you know a, a tricky decade, but you know a lot of foundational work and then it came the next two decades and you you know founded a significant company that you know was transformative for the manufacturing and industrial space and and design space and and then now with solidworks we're we're into that was twenty twelve and uh uh till twenty nineteen I guess with the acquisition
1: no no it was it was SolidWorks was ninety three. Tron, I started almost thirty. Yeah, I'm years sorry, ago.
0: not SolidWorks, Onshape. Onshape. Oh, yes, but.
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> SolidWorks was ninety three. I'm sorry, two thousand eleven, and then Onshape two thousand twelve till now, right? But two thousand twelve was yeah. a conference room with nothing, with a notion. So we didn't really, yeah. you know, we didn't really get going until two thousand thirteen, and you know, and, and so forth. But, but yeah, but that's not that journey. long
0: ago. But where are we now? So you know, we're twenty. Yeah. 21, right? Um, where, is, where is the future? Where's the next step? So because I think, first uh, of all, not, not every uh, software in this space has moved from on-prem yet, right? So we're still in this no. hybrid reality where yeah. cloud, which to many seems like, oh, those were the days where that was new. It's still new yeah. in the industry.
1: It's kind of sad, actually, but
0: yeah, it is. It is. So one, how do you explain that it's still new? And number two, what is the next spin on cloud or something else that's going to really transform uh, what what you can do?
1: So I think that that it's the story in our marketplace is one of I call it like two sumo wrestlers battling it out, you know, is the analogy I'd use. For those of you who know what sumo wrestling are, you know, it's two giant wrestlers battling in one corner. You have kind of the obviousness and inevitability of the benefits of cloud and web and mobile, which, in any other industry, is kind of old news. And if you go to the West Coast, it would be like asking if you know is color television better than black and white television or something. You know, it's like what? Why are people? We're the last industry still talking about it. And then in you know, so so it's like this inevitable shift to cloud and the benefits it brings and cost savings, collaboration, agility, innovation, performance, and so forth. And then in the other corner, you have this giant entrenchment and inertia of manufacturing. And it's no joke that, you know, manufacturing is a really tough business. Hardware is hard. And so you have very high functionality requirements, you know, that, that in order to make real products, you have large amounts of data and processes invested in a set of tools like SolidWorks. And so to get that market to tip, to move is very hard and justifiably hard and if you're a customer it's not easy to say oh i'm going to rip out my CAD system by the way all those attributes i just gave you about the entrenchment it makes it very hard to get into that that market very hard to to win it but once you win it you build a very durable growing profitable business which is why there it's interesting um, businesses and so so we're trying to you know it's the battle of the the sumo wrestlers is how I put it, you know, entrenchment versus cloud. And so, um uh uh so what's going to happen in industry in my world, a few things are happening. One is we're gonna be moving more and more to SaaS solutions. I think I've covered that. But more importantly, we're moving. What does that mean for industry? For I'm gonna give a broader technical and a broader industry trend. Technically, Um, we're moving more to a digital thread. And so I've been telling the story of CAD, but that's only part of the digital journey for manufacturing. So we're going to see, when I think of digital thread, the best way I'd summarize it is uh, digital systems that encompass sort of three everys. Every person is connected. Every asset physically is connected. Manufacturing equipment, products themselves connected. Every piece of data about them. All, those are the three everies, all in real-time, you know, real-time updating. And that, to me, is digital thread. And what it does is it takes you beyond the generation of digital systems a lot of people have now are emulating paper workflows digitally. I mean, if you think about it, files and folders and email, forwarding, inboxes, those are all concepts borrowed from paper, <laughs> you know like like we took the paper world and we comfort we comfort food, gave us digital tools that emulate it, so we end up with these ideas of copying stuff around and putting in your inbox even even the icon for for email is typically a paper envelope, so we're automating paper in the first digital generation of CAD and other tools.
0: It's and fascinating that you, know, that you bring yeah. up this uh this uh, story because uh, and this idea that we finally can move beyond paper. I mean, if this is really going to happen, um the shifts could be much more drastic than than they were in the last 30 years of so sort of like productivity mm-hmm. software for for sort of desk workers, right? Yeah. If you really are now saying that the physical space, physical industry it, you know, is close to some products and innovations that are going to move beyond just paper workflow. So so tell me yeah. about what, what, what some of those systems look like, uh, which ones uh, matter. I mean, in other circles, right, they use terms like industry for technologies yeah, or industry smart manufacturing. Smart I mean, manufacturing, do, yeah. some, this is part of that complex.
1: Yeah, and so what we're going to see is, and we're seeing it today with a lot of other companies are talking about this. It's not just CAD. It's connecting the the factory floor so a number of companies and technologies that are connecting the equipment on the factory floor so instead of getting out of date you know copies of spreadsheets which again is saying well we'll just do what we did on paper but we'll do it electronically big deal instead what they're doing is connecting in real time so you have a two-way digital connection between the equipment on the factory floor and not just the equipment but the worker okay mm-hmm. the worker on the factory floor the equipment on the factory floor and then everyone who has a stake in it—management, peers, and other factory locations—new factories coming online, and we give people data insights, training that they could never get otherwise. And this is where some other technologies come in: IoT, at the you know, as a sense connecting that kind of um, flow at the lowest level, and augmented reality becomes very important. And there's a lot of definitions of augmented reality, but to me. If we're going to give the frontline manufacturing worker, if we're going to connect them, every one of them came back to my every of digital thread. If every worker is going to be connected, they're not going to be co- connected the way you and I are now at desktop computers with big monitors seated in chairs. We need to give them information that they can work with. So a, a, um, a, a, uh, uh, a, a, a AR headset can put digital information superimposed into their world of, of assembly or of service. And that's super exciting um, in terms of how they I'm, I'm interested
0: there, in the right? form factors that this is going to take for you, because you have seen so many transitions. Form factor is really important when, when you're dealing with a yeah, physical it's, workspace.
1: Well, we haven't seen the, the real tipping point devices of AR, but we're seeing a lot of AR. And I consider augmented reality to not just be your traditional headsets, And by the way, I don't mean virtual reality because virtual reality I don't think has much to do with the frontline worker. You know, virtual, you're in a full virtual environment. That's the last thing you want in a factory is to take someone away from... So in a factory, people need to be alert to what's happening around them. Or in a service situation, you go out to service a a diesel generator for electricity and it costs a lot of money in downtime. The worker can come out and have a headset and the headset... That they're wearing and it could be glasses it could be a headset it could be maybe a tablet computer that augments it could be physical i would include in this physical hardware that goes on the devices that might give them information like like for instance they might walk might walk up and an led might light up near a valve that led could be in their headset you know that they see it virtually augmented reality style, or it could be physical and it lights up because there's an IoT system that says, okay, unit number 3172A is being serviced by this technician. Um, I know he's an entry-level technician. I'm going to walk him through the steps very carefully. Um, We had an expert record a series of steps on how to do this service operation. We can replay that with augmented instructional aids, but those instructional aids aren't a PDF file on a MacBook, their instructional aids situated in the physical world that show them where to go and what to do. There's also a social dimension to this because the frontline workers are a more diverse population. And if we're going to bring them into the digital thread reality, we can't wait for the next generation to get the benefits of education and so forth. We have to bring them in now, and this is a way to do it
0: yeah there's a major skills challenge there for sure. Can you comment yeah. on on how tulip's sort of frontline operations platform fits into this picture from from where you see it because you sort of you've seen as we have traced both the the past present and 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 into the future where where does a product like a tulip, which you know started out being sort of conceptualized more like a manufacturing execution system, but clearly has some elements of sort of no code and, and a little bit of the elements you're talking about here, which doesn't assume so much expertise, I guess, on, well, on the part uh, yeah. of the workers. Using. And what I,
1: I think I'm excited about Tulip because it's ex- it's an example of exactly the type of system I'm talking about, where it's a digital thread kind of thought, you know, a piece of a digital thread that that connects. It's basically empowering. I see it as empowering the worker with digital augmentation to their work. Okay. And empowering all the other people connect who have an interest to have a stake in how that manufacturing line is running with the data they need connected really in real time. So the manager, this is how I see it. I'm no expert, but yes, my opinion. So I see it as totally consistent with a industry 4.0 digital thread kind of strategy, um, that would, that would allow it to, to, um, it's one of those kinds of systems that that is looking forward to to helping, looking forward, that is forward looking, I should say, in helping helping uh, use digital technology to really improve how manufacturing works for the worker and all the other stakeholders through a, a, a digital platform.
0: I wanted to close just by asking you a super simple question. You know, if you look another decade in, yeah. So we have been talking in decades. So yeah. now we're in, I, arguably, yeah. you know, in in one decade, and that's perhaps the decade of these digital threads spreading out, uh, you know, fully into SaaS, maybe, and 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 you know, some amount of augmentation going on, and hopefully spreading a little bit across this diverse worker population that that you say, right, to really get the benefits to sort of percolate. But what what is next? after that has been done, which obviously could take more than 10 years. I yeah. do not know. But what what's next after that?
1: So I think I think 10 years from now, you know, the idea of of, of digital thread will be the norm. And if someone says I'm gonna copy some data and forward it to you, they literally won't know what you mean by that. <laughs> you know, they literally won't know. Like by the way, one you watched The Next Generation, one of my teenagers when they were about 14, 15, I had said to them, "Oh, you got that message? Just forward it to your teacher with the information." They're like, "What's forwarding?" They 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 live their life in text messages. They've used email so little, it's like asking them to to buy postage stamps. They they just don't quite understand email. Serious, I know. For us, it seems odd. So I think a decade from now, we'll we won't be you know we won't be dealing with installed software and files and stuff so much. We'll be expecting. Real-time digital connections, whether it's with, with each other like this or with data in a system like an Onshape or, or a, an IoT system or a Tulip or something. I think what will happen as a result a few other things that are going on. One is we're going to see processes evolve because with those tools, people can be much more agile and innovative than they could be in the old world. So agile design is going to come to manufacturing the way it's come to software. In a big way. And you're gonna see you're gonna see teams working in much tighter cycles and more of them because that makes a higher performing system. By the way, just like if you want to control a high performance missile or aircraft, you sample frequently and, and adjust course frequently, and that brings you to target. And the same will happen with product development. Another thing we'll start to see, excuse me, is more and more, of course, computer assistance based on all that data. So we're starting to see that with generative design, we'll see the computer saying, "Hey, I've got a way to to look at your manufacturing line and reorganize it. I've got a way to redesign that part to save a little weight." Okay, and that will come in. And because we're, when we have a digital thread, the computer is connected in real time too, and not just a computer. The idea of using a computer would be will be in the future a ridiculous idea because it'll all be cloud based. No one will even understand that. In the future, people say um, people will be asking, "Oh, you have software that runs on one computer? How could that be fast enough?" Okay. Anyway, the other thing, so we'll see, we'll see a lot more, a lot more computing power brought to bear on these problems through AI or machine learning, whatever you want to call it. We'll see more hardware devices coming in because once you're on a digital thread or a SaaS-based system, new hardware can enter more easily. And so we'll see, as we're seeing now, look, I'm using my watch and I get notifications on here and that's cool. And I do believe we'll see more people building things that you'd call AR devices. Um, I also think we'll see things in geometric modeling change. We'll see, because of the emergence of of more 3D printing and generative design, we're going to see um, geometric representations, this scale of a little technical in my field, that are more um, are more uh, uh, are, are of a different variety, let's just say, without getting into the details so much. And we may see new systems. I got to say, at some point, we may see systems that I can't dream of. And I hope we do.
0: Well, yeah. on that note, I was going to give you an unfair last question to answer, oh, sure. which is next time you come on a podcast, whether it is you know a f- just a few months from now, a few years from now, or indeed a decade from now, will, will you have grown a beard and sort of look back at the industry or will you have been in another boardroom and in another VC meeting to pitch the next <sighs> big thing? Well, I,
1: don't, I I don't think I'll be doing either. I have no plans to regrow my beard. Um, and right now I have to say, I'm very happy where I am. PTC has been a great place for us to, you know, take on shape to the next level. We also have introduced something called the Atlas platform that I'm also responsible Mm -hmm. for, for an array of digital manufacturing and augmented reality applications that we'll be building and product lifecycle management on top of it, which is really cool. Um, and, uh, I'm really happy doing that. And so I'm kind of hoping that this is my last career step, you know, like, like, you know, to me, um, you know, I've been married before twice in my personal life. I'm married now, very happily married, but it was my second marriage. You know, I don't want to have a third marriage. I don't want to have a third company. I like, you know, or fourth company or whatever. I like where I am business wise. And so I hope to stay here, but you never know in the future. You never know, but I'm pretty happy. And I feel, I have a lot more good work to do for my customers right here where I am so
0: well that's that's wonderful well, certainly, I thank you for for painting or or describing i don't know what the metaphor is this digital thread throughout these uh, decades for us and uh, I wanted to say that you know whatever you do you're welcome back here uh, i I certainly think it would be another hour maybe we can have <laughs> you on to discuss innovation inside of a big corporation because oh, specifically yeah. in manufacturing that that must be you know, it, it is a completely different animal, I guess, and you have you have experienced both because you have sold to these corporations. So, so I'd I'd love if you would uh, come back. Maybe we'll have a broader panel, oh. and, and I'd love to come come and discuss this this sort of like back and forth, I guess, between startup innovation and large company innovation, and you sort of need both to propel the industry forward.
1: Well, I'd be honored, uh, Tron. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for the the content you're getting out to the audience i think it's great it's a great topic and i'm delighted to be part of it now and maybe again in the future who knows
0: well thank you so much john it's been a pleasure speaking with such a legend you have just listened to episode 23 of the augmented podcast with host Wilnon enheim the topic was digital manufacturing with cad cam in the cloud our guest was john herstic head of SaaS Onshape and Atlas platform at PTC. In this conversation, we talked about the story of SOLIDWORKS, using agile methods, listening to the market, charting the evolution of CAD into SaaS, and its emerging and future iterations in the open source cloud and beyond. My takeaway is that digital manufacturing is moving to the cloud, and that means a whole lot more than office software moving to the cloud. In fact, establishing a real-time digital thread through next-generation low-code and no-code systems will reshape industry. The notion of factory production, distributed teams, product development will all evolve significantly and will enable personalization across industry and across any and eventually all of manufactured goods. The ramifications will be huge but they won't automatically happen tomorrow. And the benefits will spread unevenly, depending on who, be it corporations, nations, startups, or small and medium enterprises, grabs the gauntlet first. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 43, Digitized Supply Chain, Episode 24, Emerging Interfaces for Human Augmentation. Or Episode 21, The Future of Digital in Manufacturing. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter to everyone.